What is the fruitiest subject at school? I don't, I don't know. know. What? History, because it's full of dates. This episode of the Children's Hour is a rebroadcast in honor of the Pueblo Revolt on August 10, 1680. That was Native Roots, the title track, off of A Place I Call Home. They're out of Santa Ana Pueblo here in New Mexico and other places. And you're listening to the Children's Hour. I'm Katie Stone. Today, we're doing something a little different with our show. Over the course of this year, we've been taking virtual field trips to places that are important to the history of our region, 
the southwestern United States. Maybe you or someone you know attended some, but we wanted to take today's show to share the amazing stories that we've learned from historians, archaeologists, and educators across our region. When we talk about the history of the southwestern United States, we're mostly thinking about the people's history. But everybody comes from somewhere looking for land, food, and a place to call home. I'm Katie Stone, and here at the Children's Hour, we wanted to learn more about the history of the place we call home. You know, I think for for me, one of the most exciting things about this story is the ancestors of the people that left these prints are still here. It really is like visiting your oldest grandparents' house and getting to go say hello. It lets us know as indigenous people that, yeah, our timeline is a lot later or than it, everybody presumed it was. In this series, we're diving into how the high desert region of the southwestern United States came to be what it is today, and who's shaped that history along the way. This is A Brief History of the American Southwest for Kids. Our story begins at White Sands National Park. And if you haven't been there, it's sort of like stepping into another world. People have been migrating across these white dunes for at least 23,000 years. How do we know they were there? On a virtual field trip to White Sands National Park, our guests told us all about it. You know, there's prints from around the world that are much older than White Sands. But what's so unique about White Sands is our prints are very long. And then there's, there's just thousands and thousands of these prints. So there's uh, much longer than most other trackways, over two miles in some places. That's David Bustos. He works at White Sands National Park studying fossilized footprints of both people and animals. You know, White Sands, it, it's the world's largest ships in dune field. But before the dunes were here, there was a giant lake called Lake Otero. And so this lake was about 20 miles long and some places about 20 miles wide. And everywhere throughout this lake, it looks like animals, the giant animals, and many people walked all through this area for thousands of years. They, they walked along with one another. Before there were any sand dunes there, the land was made of both wetlands and grasslands. Things could get very muddy around there, and sometimes when walking along, people and animals left footprints in the mud. Over time, these prints fossilized, some into stone. Most are so soft they can be cut with a butter knife. Long covered by the glistening sands, erosion from wind, rain, and weather eventually revealed the footprints. These footprints give us a scientific timeline of when people started coming to New Mexico. The oldest footprints, which were discovered in 2021, are formed more than 23,000 years ago. But that discovery doesn't tell us much about who made them. Indigenous communities have been sharing the story of humans in the Tularosa Basin with their children for thousands of years. Archaeologist Mary Wiaki has heard them her entire life. She's a member of the Santa Clara Pueblo and the Comanche Nation. Today, she works at the Center for New Mexico Archaeology. 
They settle down for a short period of time in these locations. So as hunter-gatherers, the first thing you're going to do is find food staples. And where better else to find them than along water tributaries? So they have temporary housing structures. So you have these little dug-in basins that they'll sleep in. They're not very big. They're like maybe four by six foot and they're dug down with uh, probably reeds over the top or some kind of tree limb, and they're temporary. So they would go back to the earth as soon as they, they would start migrating. And that's why you're seeing so many footprints means migration time periods, which was about the same time that they were coming through White Sands. We know that all those years ago, people were migrating throughout the area and using what was around them to survive. I'll give you a few moments to pause and guess what tools people might have needed back then. What about clothes? Or weapons for hunting? That's right. Mary is an expert in recreating historic inventions used by indigenous people. Here's what she had to say. You're looking at stone tool manufacturing, and you need water to soak the hide. You need water and steam to create the handles for your tools. And there's plenty of stones out there with basalt volcanic location site. So they're actually still moving. So they're making textiles and they're creating uh, reed backpacks and tumps out of uh, yucca and other fibrous material on those location sites. So we know the first people to live in our region 23,000 years ago were nomadic. They moved around, they lived off the land, and designed tools to help them survive. Coming up, we'll talk about what happened once humans started settling down in the Southwest. You're listening to The Children's Hour. The Children's Hour has developed a six-part podcast series called A Brief History of the American Southwest for Kids that's for educators to use in the classroom. Find it at childrenshour.org slash history.
That was Robert Mirabal out of Taos, Pueblo. We're learning about Southwestern United States history today. And we know that over 10,000 years, communities grew in this desert, leaving elaborate roads and structures that still remain today. We're heading now to Chaco Canyon in the northwest corner of what's now called New Mexico. I know where that is. What do you know? Chaco Canyon was home to the ancestral Pueblo people. They started settling the area in the third century with small villages. But by the 10th century, Chaco Canyon became a thriving destination for culture and trade across the region. And over 200 villages existed outside the canyon, using its unique building styles. If you add all that land up, the settled region was bigger than England. Wow, I'll let Mr. Nathan Hadfield tell us more. He's a park ranger and chief of interpretation at Chaco Culture National Historic Park. If you come to Chaco Canyon, what you're going to see are giant monumental buildings. These buildings were four or five stories tall. They had several hundred rooms and they were built over a thousand years ago. A thousand years ago, they didn't have tractors and tools like we have today. It was people using very simple tools to do amazing things. On our virtual field trip, he told us the biggest building in Chaco Canyon is called Pueblo Bonito, which took hundreds of years to finish. It was built with sandstone and mortar. It had a great big open plaza where they might have dances and different ceremonies. And it had several round spaces called kivas where they had special, very special sacred ceremonies as well. And this building, Pueblo Bonito, along with other buildings in Chaco, they were more than just buildings. When you think of a monument, you might think of the Washington Monument or some of the monuments that we hold very special for you know, American culture and American society. For the buildings in Chaco Canyon, they were doing the same thing. What's even more amazing is how much we've learned about this ancient civilization without any written records to study. There's no diaries or history books, just these amazing buildings, oral histories, and relics left behind. When Chaco was rediscovered in the late 1800s, a lot of those early explorers thought there must be thousands of people living in all of these giant buildings. And then as archaeologists got smarter, they began to realize there wasn't a lot of other evidence that would support a year-round population. So then the thinking began to shift, that you might have had a year-round population of maybe just a few thousand people in the entire canyon, but during a special event or a ceremony like solstice or equinox, you might have people coming from 50, 60 miles or more. And then once those celebrations were over, they might go back to their year-round homes. Let's bring in archaeologist Mary Wiaki. Last time we talked with her, she told us about the ancient footprints found at White Sands National Park. Those dated back 23,000 years. And now we're talking about 1,000 years ago. That's around 20,000 years later. What can you tell us about that period? There is, a, of course, that transition from when we were migratory and we were 
walking and leaving footprints in White Sands as well as other locations. And we were all trying to find a better place to become productive human beings. So Chaco was chosen because of Fajada Butte and its spirituality. There's a butte that's in Chaco called Fajada Butte that has a calendar of solstice markers. And so they set this up so they could know and understand transitions in their surroundings, like fall season, spring, summer, when to plant, when was the best time to celebrate. Their village was not just made because it was a good location. It was based on lunar and Venus and solar design. So that way you could have passive solar. You could stay warm in the winter and stay cool in the summer. They also knew how to irrigate systems with very little water. They had cisterns. They had plumbing. They were impressive people. And in addition to building architecture and growing food, the buildings at Chaco Canyon give us a window into other crucial skills indigenous people were honing back then, like the ability to trade between villages. Very early on, archaeologists were finding things inside these old buildings, and they were just finding things that were from New Mexico or from the Four Corners area. They were finding things that came from very far away. So that tells us not only these people building these amazing structures, but they were traveling great distances and bringing stuff from maybe as far as 500 miles away to Chaco Canyon. Nathan showed us replicas of jewelry, like a necklace laced with seashells and bells made from copper for ceremonies and dances. They found burials of a very special kind of bird. This is a scarlet macaw. It's a beautiful bird that lives in tropical areas down near Mexico and what is now Central America. And these birds are very large and they're very colorful. Somehow they made their way to Chaco Canyon. Someone probably brought it up or maybe someone traveled to the bird's home and brought it back. In just one of the rooms, archaeologists found 14 macaw skeletons at Pueblo Benito and more than 50,000 pieces of turquoise. Chaco Canyon was diverse. It was a place where many different tribes came together to worship, trade, and forge survival together as a region. We've got so much more to learn about those descended from Chaco Canyon. You're listening to The Children's Hour. The Children's Hour is produced by The Children's Hour Incorporated. We're listener-supported at childrenshour.org. This program is made possible thanks to the generous support of the New Mexico Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. Any views, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in this program do not necessarily represent those of the National Endowment for the Humanities or the New Mexico Humanities Council. Electric Playhouse supports the Children's Hour. Find your play at Electric Playhouse in Albuquerque, New Mexico. It's fun for kids and adults who want to play like a kid again. Featuring 16 interactive spaces with constantly rotating games and a full restaurant. Families can play and dine at Electric Playhouse. Tickets and investment opportunities at electricplayhouse.com. The New Mexico Department of Cultural Affairs supports the Children's Hour. Their Office of Archaeological Studies, OAS, puts archaeology at your fingertips. Become a time-traveling detective through hands-on activities, replica artifacts, and arts and crafts. Learn more about OAS at nmarchaeology.org. 
Welcome back to the Children's Hour over the break. That was Blue Dot Sessions. Today, we're bringing you a brief history of the American Southwest for kids. We've just heard all about the amazing buildings and history tied to Chaco Canyon. We met up with a few experts to tell us more, like John Jahadi. He's an educator from the pueblos of Laguna and Zuni. Here's what he told us. There were many societal structures that were part of the Western Hemisphere, which met its pinnacle or its highest point when the group of people, what we now refer to as Chaco, significantly changed how people were going to live together. They were no longer living in small little community groups. We're talking a large metropolitan group of people that were able to sustain an entire population of almost like we would say some of our major cities here. And that was happening all over the region. People were living together in new ways with new technologies. One of these groups were the Ashiwi people, the Zunis. So when new people came in, it was always an opportunity to learn from each other. That's Curtis Kwam, the director of the Ashiwi Awan Museum and Heritage Center. Whether it was about landscape, whether it was about plants, whether it was animals, or just a different outlook on life. I think that's something that's really important, and we share this understanding with other Puebloan tribes and other Native tribes within the area to help who we are. During the 1500s, the Zunis learned about a new group of people moving across the continent, all the way from another continent. And 1539, a small expedition led by Fray Marcos de Niza and his lead scout was Estefanico. Marcos de Niza was a Christian missionary from Spain. He was part of a group called the Franciscans, one of the many groups sent by their king to help expand the country's empire. He'd been to other places too, like Peru, Guatemala, and Mexico. But what about his companion, Estevanico? A lot of people say that he was the first African to explore our region. It is written that Estevanico was kind of a scout, but also a slave that was gaining his own foot in the world in a way. The Spanish wanted that land for themselves and all the resources that came with it. That explains one of the biggest stories making its way around the region at that time, the myth of the seven cities of gold. The Spanish believed there was an incredible amount of wealth there. If only they could find those towns. They dreamed of buildings made of gold and riches beyond their wildest imaginations. The only problem? It wasn't real. In 1539, Estevanico's mission failed. He was killed by the Zuni, and the Spanish were driven from the tribal nation. Marcos de Niza went back to Mexico City and lied to Spanish officials that he'd actually found the seven cities. So, Spain sent out another team. And around July 7, 1540, is when they came into a, a village that we call Hawiku, which is about 13, 14 miles southwest of our current Pueblo that we reside in. The only thing I can compare to that would be like aliens coming down. One of the things that I've heard from one of our elders is that he related to this weird being coming into our village. This weird creature had six legs, two heads and four eyes. Wait, it had six legs, two heads and four eyes? What could that be? Could it be an animal? Okay, so the answer to this 
instead of referring to a person and a horse, they described it as one being. Again, transportation was pretty much by foot. So they have never seen horses before, and they've never seen a person on a horse. They had altogether six legs, two heads, and four eyes. What the Spanish were doing would change the region forever and upend the lives of all the tribes that had called this area home for thousands of years. Here's John Jihadi. Certainly the Spanish that did come to the Southwest, they were under still a very unknown reason why they came. Oftentimes we're told, especially those of us who go to public school, that they came here looking for gold. However, we can certainly learn more from when we investigate and thoroughly research what the Spanish wrote at the time, and they were still very much convinced that they would find Asia on this side, not gold. What they wanted was the porcelain, the spices, the silk, the cardamom, the cinnamon, uh, pepper, all of those things that were not in the eastern part of Europe. They wanted all those things, and they just wanted a quicker, easier way to do that. In a lot of history books, this moment in world history is called the Age of Discovery, Western countries were traveling to other lands, looking for new trade routes and more land to control. But that's not what it felt like for the indigenous people encountering these new populations. We met Diego Medina in our first episode. He says the Spanish wanted the land and its resources, including the people already living there. What we see is the economy of people begin to really pick up in the Southwest. And so people were being taken from various villages and communities and moved all around as slaves and as servants to do the work of the spread of the Spanish empire in this part of the world. The Spanish also converted many indigenous people away from their ancestral beliefs. Missions were basically churches that were meant to house native people and to have us live there and and do work building the church and While we're living there and doing work, we're also being taught the Catholic doctrines. And we have stories of revolts taking place during this time period that were very, very violent and sometimes very harmful towards both sides. Coming up, we're diving into one of the Southwest's most famous battles, the Pueblo Revolt of 1680. Stick with us. This is the Children's Hour. Oh, 
Buffalo dancer is Jimmy Shendo. He's from Jemez Pueblo, now called Hualatoa Pueblo, here in New Mexico. This is the Children's Hour. I'm Katie Stone. Today, a brief history of the American Southwest for kids. So let's travel back in time again. It's the mid-1500s. That's more than 400 years ago. And at the time in the desert Southwest, people who had been living here for over 20,000 years found themselves occupied by strangers. You mean the Spanish soldiers and priests. Exactly. The arrival of the Spanish marked the beginning of what's called colonialism in the Southwest. That's when people come to an area they don't own, take over some or all of the land, and try to make money off of it and its people. The settlers used violence for controlling indigenous people, like enslaving them and even beating or killing some for practicing their religious beliefs. Like Pope. That's right. He's a very important example. Pope was a Puebloan religious leader. In the 1670s, the Spanish convicted him of sorcery and he was sentenced to be whipped. And after he suffered that punishment, he made a decision, one that he knew would surely lead to danger he decided to organize a revolt against the Spanish. But how did he do it? Pope made an incredibly creative plan to tell others in the area when the revolt was happening, using a calendar system. Diego Medina, tribal historic preservation officer for the Piro Mansotewa tribe, told us all about it. His plan was to create a system of woven cordage that can be untied to mark the day's until the Pueblo Revolt need to happen, which was scheduled for August 11th. And he chose that day because of some of the intuition he had around the seasons and the stars and the need to execute during that time of the year. The way many indigenous people tell it, these cords were made of deerskin or possibly the yucca palm. So think of almost a long piece of leather with several knots tied into the strip. Organizers delivered them from hundreds of miles away, and each day leading up to the revolt, people would untie one knot from the strip. And once they untied the final knot, that's how they knew it was the day to fight. The Spanish forces, which are actually pretty small, you know, a thousand or so people scattered throughout the Santa Fe area, and only a couple of hundred actually participated on behalf of the Spanish in the Pueblo Revolt as soldiers. And so the Puebloan forces were way more organized, which led to a successful revolt against the Spanish and the eventual exile of the Spanish people from northern New Mexico. It was a very bloody revolt. 21 Franciscan friars, the priests who enslaved and controlled many indigenous people, were killed, along with 400 Spanish settlers. It was a big turning point after decades of increasing Spanish control of the region. Now, when we talk about the Pueblo Revolt, the reason I call it the first American revolution is because it was successful. Similar to how we look at the American Revolution in history when The Americans at the time defeated the British and gained sovereignty from the British people. 
That happened in New Mexico where the Puebloan people had a revolution against the Spanish and regained sovereignty against the Spanish people. When we look at New Mexico history, not only is the Pueblo Revolt significant, of course, for United States history, it is probably one of the most, if not the most important historical event in New Mexico history because it really created all of the communities and the cultural framework we see today in New Mexico. And also the split between Northern New Mexico and Southern New Mexico and those cultural differences. In all of our stories, we have turning points, moments where something happens and your life changes forever. You start school or maybe your parents bring home a new sibling. These are big shifts. And thinking about the time after the Pueblo Revolt in 1680, the Southwest was having its own turning point. The aftermath wasn't so smooth because after 140 years, plus a big violent battle and revolution, things were pretty destabilized. What we have after the Pueblo Revolt and the success of the Pueblo Revolt is a 12-year period of revitalization. One of Pope's main goals was to reintroduce all of the traditional religion and cultural practices, the Pueblo and life ways back into this part of the world so that we could have that ecosystem balance and restore the original ways which were intended to be on this land. When I was in school, I didn't know that the very first American Revolution actually happened in what's now my own backyard. But the more we learn and listen to local stories, the better we can understand our communities and our shared history. We've got more to learn today here on the Children's Hour. Stick with us. In the background, XIT, Exit. They were a band in the 1970s in Albuquerque comprised of a lot of indigenous folks from around the New Mexico region. You're listening to the Children's Hour's Brief History of the American Southwest for Kids radio special. This program is available as a six-part podcast series complete with a learn-along guide. It meets and cites national education standards. You can find it at childrenshour.org slash history. Oh, yeah, nay, yeah, hey, yeah, nay. 
I said I was. I am the image of myself. I am Indian. Listening to the Children's Hour, Kids Public Radio. We'll be right back. United Way of North Central New Mexico supports the Children's Hour. Outpost Performance Space in Albuquerque, New Mexico is a proud supporter of the Children's Hour. The Children's Hour is supported in part by an award from New Mexico Arts, a division of the New Mexico Department of Cultural Affairs, and the National Endowment for the Arts. Support for the Children's Hour is also provided by the City of Albuquerque's Cultural Services Department and the Urban Enhancement Trust Fund. Token Ibis is a supporter of the Children's Hour. At Token Ibis, they know that philanthropy doesn't need more money, it needs more people. Users can direct Token Ibis money towards their favorite New Mexico nonprofits. Learn more and sign up at tokenibis.org. Welcome back to the Children's Hour, over the break and before the break, exit, X-I-T, an oldie but goodie, off of a release called Silent Warrior. You're listening to the Children's Hour. We're talking about life after the Pueblo Revolt and how one house tucked away in the New Mexico countryside can tell us so much about that period of time. On our virtual field trip to Los Luceros, we talked with Carly Stewart. She's the regional manager of the Los Luceros Historical Site. Los Luceros right now is 148 acres, and it encompasses a historic orchard, bosque, it's right on the Rio Grande. I want you to imagine a buttery yellow, two-story house in the shape of a big square. It's got balconies that wrap around the second floor with beautiful views of the river and sprawling farmlands around it. But when Los Luceros was built around 1700, this was not what the house looked like. It would have been one story. It would have looked like a square with a hollow middle. It would have had the big arches where people could bring in carts with horses to weather attacks if those were happening. And that is a good reminder that we're talking about a time where indigenous people were fighting back against brutality and control by the Spanish. So what do we know about who lived at Los Luceros before it was built? Historically, the Tewa speakers were here in this land way before the Spanish got here. But we know from archaeologist Mary Wiaki and her historic map of the Pueblo tribes that the Spanish brought disease and violence to the areas that they colonized. That changed the regional map forever. In many places, once thriving villages were left abandoned. They had no choice but to leave and join their neighbors, their friends, and create new establishments. And for around 12 years, communities reshaped. They built into larger villages, and then the Spanish returned. And this time, they had cannons. 
These were big, powerful weapons that the Puebloans didn't have. They couldn't drive them out again. And so a blended world started to emerge in the Southwest. And this was how Los Luceros started to take shape as one of the many haciendas responsible for fueling the area's growing economy. Can anybody tell me what a hacienda means? Haciendas were large estates used by Spanish colonizers to live on and oversee food and trade items being made. Yes, and for our friends in New Mexico, you may recognize this term. Spanish people took over these properties under something called a land grant. And Pueblo people were given land areas called Pueblo Leagues. A well-connected or wealthy Spanish person could go to the Spanish colonial government and say, this piece of land is unoccupied by Spanish people, and I would like it. And as long as there wasn't another Spanish person who had acclaimed that land, usually the Spanish government said, okay, you want this land, you can have it. So different parts of the property were built during different phases. The original land grant was claimed by Sebastian Martin Serrano in 1703. It was over 51,000 acres. We're pretty sure that the Hacienda, at least some iteration of it, was built during that time. But the oldest date we have for the Hacienda, the oldest official one, is 1775. Martin Serrano was a powerful figure in his community, and Spain's return to the region after the revolt. At just 27 years old, he planned a 24-room house for the property, called a plazuela. But even while he was building his new home, experts think he relied on the thousands of years of previous indigenous presence to create the house and the farm. When archaeological testing was completed, it showed that there were structural stones of the foundation that was an indigenous field house. This was a time when women strictly did the housework. And when the Spanish came overseas to colonize the Southwest, women mostly were not a part of those missions. That led to many South American women being forcibly displaced to work on properties like Los Luceros. They were bringing forced women to cook, women to do textile, women to do other um, menial labors, plus encapsulating their children to do a lot of the labor. In the 1700s, Santiago Lucero married the granddaughter of Sebastian Martin Lucerano and moved on to the property. He came from a powerful local family, known as one of the founders of Santa Fe. La Soledad eventually became Los Luceros, after his family's name. Big political shifts were happening across the world, too. Different countries were trading with each other, and looking to expand their colonies. You can see that story in the architecture of Los Luceros. The Hacienda now has a second story, and it's in what's called a Greek Revival style. And that was added in the early to mid-1800s by the man who gave Los Luceros its current name, Julian Lucero. Julian Lucero himself lived under three different political regimes while he was the owner of Los Luceros. The Spanish originally, when he first claimed the Hacienda and bought a lot of the land from his cousins, and then Mexican, because the Mexican-American War is what ended with the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo in 1848. And then, like at the very last 10 years of his life, he lived through the beginning of American colonialism. All of these influences really changed Los Luceros. 
the hacienda has a whitewash on it. The walls are white now. And that is very European. And that was made as a decision by Julian Lucero to make the walls white because it's very colonialistic to do. It makes your house stand out. It made it like a Spanish house instead of a native looking house. And so you see like all of these influences really coalescing right under Julian Lucero's time here. If you'd like a more in-depth explanation of all of that intricate history, you'll find our virtual field trip to Los Luceros online at childrenshour.org history. Coming up, we'll end our journey through history in the southwestern United States. You're listening to the Children's Hour. que traigo muy dentro del alma lo canto a mi estado, mi tierra natal de flores dorada, mi tierra encantada de lindas mujeres que no tiene igual el río del norte que es el río grande sus aguas corrientes fluyen hasta el mar Y riegan tus campos, mi tierra encantada, de lindas mujeres que no tiene igual. Así es Nuevo México, así es esta tierra del sol, de sierras y valles, de tierras brutales, así es Nuevo México. Es Nuevo México, a song written by Amadeo Lucero Sr. That song was done by Los Reyes de Albuquerque. You're listening to a brief history of the American Southwest for Kids radio special. We know after the Pueblo Revolt, haciendas like Los Luceros started popping up across the region under Spanish control, but they weren't the only group looking to expand their property. By the start of the 1800s, a new young country called the United States of America was eyeing the Southwest too. But things wouldn't be so simple as taking the land from Spain alone. In 1821, Mexico achieved independence and became its own country. And relations with the U.S. got worse and worse until eventually, in 1846, Mexico and the U.S. went to war. That war lasted for two years and ended in 1848 with the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. And that is a very important moment in our story, because after 1848, as a result of this treaty, most of the land we now know as the American West officially became property of the United States. And the way archaeologist Mary Wiaki puts it, this moment changed everything for the region. In 1848, there was this series of colonization that happened amongst a group of people, not just Pueblo people, but a lot of other Native American tribes were subject to changes in their environment and how they were socializing and moving across the terrain. America had big plans for the Southwest, including expanding the country's railroads. To do that, they needed more land. So we know America got a ton of land from the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, 
But during that same time, the U.S. military started forcing indigenous people out of their homelands and creating new, smaller communities for them to live on. The government called these areas reservations. During this time, America signed over 350 treaties. Most often, Native peoples had no choice but to sign these agreements. They were being systematically killed by the Americans. Their villages burned to the ground. It was a very scary and violent time for indigenous people. What did these treaties mean? Well, that varied across the country. These tribal reservations were mostly independent, meaning that they would govern themselves. The deals often included a promise of peace, land boundaries, and resources to hunt and to fish, in exchange for tribes recognizing the United States' authority over the land outside their reservations. But in these deals, many tribes ended up forfeiting huge pieces of their homelands and moving away. Tribes that once lived as individual nations were now boxed into tiny communities together. By the late 1870s, America had succeeded in getting enough land from the native people to expand its railways. Trains made it easier than ever before to move people and goods across the nation. And with that technology came so much more than travel and trade. New ideas came to the Southwest, and new people, too. They had different food, different style of clothing, you know. There was Italians, there were Germans. It was bad enough understanding English, but here are these other languages coming in, and we're like, okay. So we could capiche with a lot of groups of people. It's amazing what the railroad brought. And around that time, in 1871, the U.S. broke the treaties that they made with the Native people to let them live independently on their own reservations. More Europeans moved on to Native lands and started establishing their own communities. As you're looking at these people in that train and they're looking at these children, they're thinking how uncivilized. They're looking at us as a third world country. They want to change us. They want us to become more likened to them. One way they did this was through local churches, which forced Native parents to send their children away to Christian boarding schools. These schools started popping up in the 1800s, but these places were very different from the schools where American kids go today to learn. They're taking children from New Mexico and placing them in Kansas and in Oklahoma. Some of them were back east. The first thing as a part of so-called civilizing the Native was trying to educate them. They take away their language. If they spoke in their Native tongue, they were severely punished. Your hair is cut. To a Native American, this long hair is your life. And it has all the DNA from anybody and everybody you ever met in that life that that hair grew. So here they were cutting your hair, making you wear these clothing that you weren't familiar with, speaking a language that you were barely familiar with, and never to see your parents again or your homeland. My friends, the elders that I spoke to said they were placed in closets. They were whipped, they were starved, they were made to stand in the freezing cold weather. You were lucky if you ate. All these stories are terrible things. These schools are no longer open, but they operated for a long time, up until the 1970s. Those collective memories linger in Native communities, even for those who didn't experience that treatment. 
Today, many tribes have regained at least some land back from the U.S. government, but their overall population is just a fraction of what it once was. The Southwest was once home to over 100 Pueblo nations. Today, there are just 19. But that hasn't stopped communities from celebrating and protecting their culture. Nearly a quarter of American Native people live in our backyard, the Southwest. We still talk to one another. We have meetings. We have things that concerned our, our water rights. Who's encroaching on our properties? So we're lucky as a people to still have our sacred lands. And that's what we are fighting today to protect with all our heart. And we dance and we pray and we sing for this land that we have left. We've learned so much about our region. It's a story of near constant conflict, pain, and power struggle. But I hope you'll also hear the 23,000 years of indigenous strength in this history, of endurance and resilience to preserve culture, family, and land. Thanks so much for tuning into our special, A Brief History of the American Southwest for Kids. If you'd like to hear the full stories from our virtual field trips, you can find videos of all of our conversations at childrenshour.org history. There you can also find our six-part podcast series designed for use in the classroom. These 20-minute episodes come with a learn-along guide that meets and cites national education standards. Find it all at childrenshour.org history. That's Marlon Magdalena, and this is Wake Self. Born in eastern New Mexico Medical Center The same hospital in Roswell Where my parents had entered this beautiful state Most forget that we exist even But it don't matter, my soul feels at home in this region I love Sandia sunsets, I'm a mountain man I inhale the tranquility from the surrounding land You might catch me in a hat with you the Children's Hour is produced by the Children's Hour Incorporated, a New Mexico nonprofit. Our show was written by Katie Stone with lots of help from all of us on the kids' crew. Today's show was co written and co produced by Christina Stella. Our learn along guides are written by Jonathan Dunsky. Many thanks to our history review team, whose members are listed at childrenshour.org slash history. This episode had special funding from the New Mexico Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. You can find photos, links, learn along guides, and more about us at childrenshour.org. Find our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts or go to our patreon.com slash the children's hour. Or ask your smart speaker to play the children's hour podcast. Our theme music was written by C.K. Barlow. The Children's Hour is distributed by PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and by the Pacifica Radio Network. Thanks for listening to the Children's Hour. Kids Public Radio. 